Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's scripture reading is Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were very confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, trobbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tess. Thank you, Bruce. And good morning to all of you, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square again. And if you are new, a special welcome to you as well. We started last week a series on our DNA. And the reason why we decided to do this is because some of the phrases Bruce was just saying that we value questions and those who ask them, so we do question response that you can text in questions now, or we are a church not just for ourselves but for others, or we are uh, a church where you can be known, loved, and cared for. Those are just phrases. I'm sorry. They're just phrases unless we understand the DNA behind them. And that's why we're doing this series, so that we can go somewhere together. You can't do that unless we know what we're about now. Now today, if we want to know what we're about, we need to start with the problem. And when I say the problem, I mean not just the problem for us. I mean the universal problem for everyone, everywhere in this world. So we're gonna, let's look at this text in three ways. Let's look at the problem of othering. Let's look at the first step out of that problem of othering. And then the final step out of that othering. All right, so we're going to go walking. We're going to look at the problem of othering. We're going to take the first step out. And then lastly, we're going to take the, hopefully the second and last step out of othering. So first, the problem of othering. Look at our first verse. Jesus is about to tell a parable. But Luke, who is reporting this, gives us the context. Tells us to whom this is said to. And so let's, let's read it again. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Now, look up here again. Who do you know that might need this? Who do you know? It's like, to, to some who are confident who look down on everyone else. And we have to be careful. I was reading a, a commentary this week, and the commentary told a story about a Sunday school teacher who uh, did, took this passage and tried to teach on it and then told little Timmy to, to stand up and pray. And so little Timmy stands up and prays and says, Dear Lord, thank you that we're not like this Pharisee. 
thank you that we're not like this, this person who looks down on other people. And that's the problem. Because the minute we say, man, this person was so prideful, this person was such a jerk, I hate this guy. The minute you do that, we're doing the very same thing that they're doing. And that's called, I, I, I want to define that. I want to call that, it's called othering. Othering is the process by which we take ourselves and others, and we label them, either individuals or collectives, groups of people, and we use characteristics to differentiate us versus them. This, this is literally <laughs> the process of doing us versus them. I regularly have this experience in New York. Um, I ride my bike to all, everywhere. I grew up in this town riding my bike. Before, there was these things called bike lanes. Um, and, we, and now there are. There's these bright green bike lanes, which are wonderful. And so I use these bike lanes wherever I go. And often my experience is I'm riding in the bike lane, and what will happen is an inconsiderate car will turn left, not looking at the oncoming bikes that are coming down. And so... Often this, these cars would have New Jersey license plates, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to say where they're from. Um, and as they turn, and I'm coming up close, there's, these, there's this thing called a close encounter. So I do what every New Yorker does. I have some words. <laughs> and those words happen to be something along the lines of, hey, I'm riding here. <laughs> What are you doing? Are you blind? Can you not see what's going on here? And after a, a, a quaint chat, I'll go on and we'll keep going. But this is what happens. is usually within five minutes, I tend to, you know, stroll through crosswalks sometimes when the light is, is still red and I go through because I'm trying to get where I'm trying to go and I'm safe. But sometimes I get a little too close to a pedestrian. And you know what ends up happening is they say this to me. They say... What are you doing? I'm walking here. <laughs> are you blind? <laughs> Can you not see? And what happens is I feel so right when I yell at that car, but then when I'm being yelled at, I think I'm just being misunderstood. They don't understand <laughs> that I'm being very careful, that I wasn't going to endanger their lives. Don't worry. And I, I have this, I imagine this. I imagine that person who after they yell at me, they keep walking. And maybe they're trying to get to the subway, but somebody's walking a little bit too slow. So maybe somebody a little bit older than them. So they kind of throw a little shoulder and say, okay, boomer, and keep going. And that person then sees that other individual and goes, what an entitled millennial. What are they doing? They think they're so, they own this whole sidewalk. See, what, what is that? What's going on in that moment? I think what's happening is that this is how the human heart works. That what's happening in that moment is if we get our sense of self— if we get our authenticity, if we get our individuality based on our, our, our own sense of me, myself, and I, if that's true, then as we follow what the culture tells us to do, to have the sense of self, then life is about comparison. Life is about there's, there's me and then there's you. And so whenever you hear these like sort of innocuous phrases, maybe they happen just in your head where you go, oh, freshmen are so annoying, or seniors are so entitled, or those those New Jersey license plates, or you say, uh, uh, you know, men are all like dot, 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 or women are all like, you know, fill in the blank. Whenever you hear those phrases, all that's happening there is that is functionally how a comparative human heart works. And so go to our Pharisee here in the text. 
And this is where it's a little problematic because 2,000 years ago, the original listeners to this text would have saw the Pharisee as a good person. That's on purpose. This good person shows up, but look at how he prays. A lot of commentaries point this out, that when he prays, he first stands apart, says that he stood by himself because he didn't want to be near other people. And even though he uses the word God, everything is about himself. Look what, he, look what he says. I thank you. This is verse 11. I thank you that I am not like those other people. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth that all I get. In Greek, here it's only four eyes, but in Greek there's five eyes. Five times. In one little phrase, he's focusing on himself. Now I know as modern people we're told every day, you need to have a healthy sense of self. But my question is, is, is our sense of self create enough space for anybody else? Let me put it a different way. What if our emphasis on self is actually the grounds and space for why we other other people? Because I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. The fact that he has all these I statements, the fact that he stands apart, there's this, there's this, this centering of self and a distancing from other individuals to other folks. And so what I think what Jesus is saying is, is when we go around in our heads and say, you know what, I know what the problem is. The problem are, are those progressives over there. They're pushing their view on, on sex and race and gender, and they're, and they're, they're trying to uh, push that view on us. When you have that view, and you think they're looking down on you, and you start saying it like that, then what ends up happening is you start looking down on them because of how you think they're looking down on you. Or if you say, hey, the problem in this country, it's these conservatives. It, what they're trying to do is they're trying to legislate their morality. They're trying to legislate how they do things, and they want us to do them as well. When we, when we think that way, there's no way not to feel like our morality trumps theirs, that we're going to push and be mad at their morality using our morality. There's no way not to do that. And so I think that's what the brilliance of this passage is that it, it reveals— the fact that everybody's looking down at everybody else. Hundreds of years ago, you had the, in the West, you had religious wars. It was, it was, you know, very collective. But I would argue, in the spirit of authenticity, what's happening today is we're weaponizing our identities against each other. That we're, we're coming down, we're saying that the base essence of who I am, my identity, is being truncated by your identity. How else do we explain why you have religious people? What happens is religious people look down on people who are not religious. Or I've been seeing this a lot more. I've seen uh, many female feminists who say, they say, my identity is that I was born a woman. And yet they come in conflict with, with in, trans individuals who say, no, 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 I get to choose to be a woman. And what is, what's happening is there's a weaponization of identity. Who gets to win? Whose rights are more important in that moment? Everybody is saying... My right beats your right. And we're getting more and more fractured this, this way. And so this is what, what's happening is when we're saying you can't fully accept me, you can't fully know me unless you hold my view of who I say I am, and everybody's doing that against each other, which I think I just summarized our culture today, what you're seeing is that there's an othering process happening. And if, you, if we can pretend that it's getting better, the world's getting a better place, but I see more fracturing. I see more brokenness. And until we wake up that this is the problem, that the reason why we're in the state that we're in right now is because we have a problem of othering, and it's not just them, it's everyone. I put myself in here too. That's our issue. And the question is, is what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? 
The text gives us the first step out of othering. Let me, let me, let me point it out to you. It's the tax collector. And again, the tax collector, a little bit of background. Back then, Romans would conscript individuals that were uh, locals in all the towns because they would know who everyone else was. And they would say, hey, you be our tax collector. Here's the set amount you need to give us every month, and you can raise anything else above that, and they did, for yourself. And they would have the power, they have the might, they would have the, the Roman guards on their side. And so tax collectors back then literally were professional cheats, and they were considered the, the bottom dwellers of society. They were universally hated. And Jesus purposely picks this individual who shows up, and they do something different here. Look at verse 13. In 13, they too stand at a distance. But this is not a distance out away from other people. This is a distance we can tell from the next text, the next verse, because of the fact that he couldn't even look up to heaven. He couldn't even, because he was so embarrassed and so ashamed, he couldn't muster head movement to look up to his maker. And the question is, is what's going on in that moment? There is a, um, a book called Why We're Restless. And there's a chapter in that book about the 17th century mathematician Blaise Pascal. And he died, I think, in like the 1660s, right before, right at the very beginning when the Enlightenment movement started. But he had realized that his countrymen, the French, had moved away from the concept of, of God and had started moving into this idea that be true to thyself. This idea that we need to, to get away from these petty views of God and, and center on self more. And so what he did was he started writing these treaties to say, wait a second, wait a second. Don't we all know that there's something wrong? And we need to acknowledge this. Don't we all know that we see what you call friendship really is just two people using each other. You're using them and, and they're using you. Are we not seeing that there's a thinning of relationship as we move from relationships that are, uh, are promise-based to kind of transactional? Do we not see that's a problem? And so what Pascal was trying to point out is until we acknowledge this, we're not going to ever be, be able to move forward. In fact, the more we pretend that we're okay, the more things will become not okay. And that's where the tax collector is interesting because the tax collector knew he was not okay. And because he knew that, he was able to be honest. And that's, by the way, the first step out of othering. The first step is the acknowledgement and realization that you do do it. And I, I ought to argue the Pharisee couldn't see it. The Pharisee couldn't admit it. He would never have said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And that term, by the way, is not a, a self-hating term. It's actually a self-reflective term. Talk to any counselor out there. All counselors will tell you, you can't begin to change. You can't begin to be different unless you acknowledge the truth, unless you're actually honest with yourself. And so before we move on, ha have you been honest with yourself? Because I would argue the, the core of othering is excluding somebody else, but you can only exclude if you differenti differentiate yourself from others. But if you know that you're the problem, then you're never going to fully exclude somebody else because even though they might have hurt or done something different than you did, you've done things too. And so you do not exclude them from outside the, the realm of humanity. You do not exclude them outside the realm of, of common decency. But if we're the same, then we, then we can bring them in too. And so here's the scary part that I think too often we, we skip right over. The tax collector 
all tax collectors because they knew, because society told them, you're the worst. They knew they were. But that means in the more cleaned up you are, the more put together you are, the harder it's going to be to be honest about who you are. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. So go back to the Pharisee. Notice the Pharisee says, I tithe a tenth of all I get. In, um, this is hard to see in just the English, but the Mosaic law said that you were supposed to tithe everything you made. So he's saying, actually, no, I tithe more than that. I tithe above and beyond. I, I tithe everything. 10% of everything that's mine, I give away. Which, by the way, is great. That's a, that's a, that's a good thing. But because he understood that and saw that, Jesus is saying something profound, that the more good that you are, the more you're going to other other people, because you're not going to be able to see your own need. The more that you feel like, hey, I'm put together, you're going to look at other people and say, why aren't you put together? That is human nature, and that's the problem, because the scary part about this, and I've been thinking about this myself, is, is that if you feel pretty good about yourself, it's going to be harder, it's going to be easier for you to look at somebody else and say, they're, they're the problem. They're the worst. That, you know, class, that group, that people is the problem. And that's why I think in the Bible, the reason why it's always the tax collectors and the prostitutes and it's the bad people, they don't get the gospel or come to Jesus because they're quantitatively better. They're obviously, many times, objectively worse they come because they know their need. And the people who don't come are the people who don't know their need. So, biblically speaking, it's the needy who are in. It's always the proud who are out. I had a friend that I've been talking to who's been trying to get closer to his brother. You know, they're both adults now, and they're trying to get closer. And as they've been getting to know each other, re- re-getting to know each other, uh, his younger brother kept on bringing up the fact that uh, of, a, of a childhood experience that they had. He kept on bringing up the fact that, uh, you know, did you remember, do you remember when you were 12 and I was 8 and you used to pin me down on the floor and when I was powerless, you would, you would pretend like you would drip spit on my face, but then you'd pull it right back up. But there was that time when you, you, you got too close and you weren't able to pull it back up and literally you spit on me. Do you remember that? Because I felt so powerless in that moment. I felt so hurt when you did that, and I'm still working through it. And this friend was telling me, he said, you know, when he first heard that, he, his immediate reaction was, ah, you're being so sensitive. That happened so long ago. We were just kids. Don't, don't make this into a big deal. That was the first thing. But then, for whatever reason, he let himself sit in it. He let himself feel what his brother had felt and the weight of his actions. And he beat his breast, and he said, that's me. He stood at a distance. He put his head down. He couldn't lift his head up. He had done it because he was willing to allow himself in that moment to sit in that space. Instead of quickly make an excuse and get out of the fields, he stayed. And the question is, is have you done that for yourself? Have you taken this first step to, 
because you can't address a problem you don't see. And seeing your othering is, is the first step out of it. And I don't know if we live in a culture anymore that actually stresses this. I don't know if we've really done it. I don't know if we've gone deep enough because that's the first step. Now, last one, last step. This first step is good, but only seeing yourself as a sinner, I would argue, is incomplete. A lot of times I've heard people preach this passage and say, be like this tax collector. But I would actually argue that if you just stay in this moment, in this state, he's gonna, you're going to stay in this state, of, uh, this state of shame and sin, and you're not going to ever be able to look up. And so it's incomplete. And you say, well, how do I know that? Well, notice he asked for mercy. What a lot of people don't know is that there is a Greek word for mercy that is, is common. That's not used here. In fact, the word used here for mercy is only used twice in the entire, Bible, entire New Testament. And it's the word for atoning sacrifice. And this is where we have to go back to the context. Remember, this man is at the temple. And at the temple in Jerusalem, what you would have smelled and seen all around you is you would have seen burning carcasses. You would have smelled 24-7 sacrifices because the death of a valuable animal was a, a depiction. It was a giant illustration. It was a, a life lesson that there is a costliness to othering. And the Jewish people would have seen it all the time. They would have known it. It would have been in their face. And so somehow this tax collector knew for God to accept him, he didn't need just sort of a general mercy term. He needed an atoning sacrifice. He needed a payment to be made. He knew he needed that, and he knew that's what he should ask for. But you know what? I don't know if he knew that he was going to get it. I'm not sure. It's not clear from the text that he walked away knowing that he was going to be given mercy. And so I think that's actually the final step out of othering. It's in, it's in the last verse. Look what Jesus says. He says, I tell you this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now some of you are like, that word justified, so what? It, it, it's not a, a warm, fuzzy word, is it? Justification. But its meaning should be because at the core of justification is the idea that we no longer have to hold our heads low that he gets mercy and he gets atonement. But what you really should be doing when you hear that phrase is you should go right back up to the Pharisee and say, wait, 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 hold the phone. Why does the tax collector get this but not the, the Pharisee? Right? Why, why is that happening? Because at the end of the day, there is no difference between them except the Pharisee doesn't ask for mercy and the tax collector does. There's one who asked for mercy and the other one didn't. And that's actually, that's what Jesus is trying to say. Is you get justification. You get justified to the degree that you ask for it. That asking for mercy leads to mercy. And having mercy leads to joy. And joy allows you to sit and bask in the love and acceptance of God. And so all those sacrifices that were going on in the temple at this time. I think the people that are offering, I think folks knew at some level there's not— this calf, this lamb is not going to be able to really pay for my sins. And what Jesus is saying here is saying, guess what? That's my job. That's my space. That's what I'm here to do. So when you ask for mercy, you're not asking for God to just kind of let you off. What you're asking for is the costliness of our othering to be paid for. And guess what? If you get that, if you realize it, if, if you are able to embody that and feel it and sit in that, what happens? What happens? 
Go back to that man who did that to his, his brother. Go back to the one he was 12 and, 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 and the, his brother was 8. He can't undo that moment. He can't undo the trauma. He can't undo the damage that was done. But knowing that his sins were paid for, to the sins of his 12-year-old self that he didn't even know he needed to be paid for until it was brought to his attention, and that he's forgiven. Guess what? Now, if he knew that, he wouldn't have to run. He wouldn't have to hide. He could stay in that moment. He could, he could sit. He could own and enter and, and be with his brother and start working for the change that needed to happen. Because that's the truth, is that if you knew the depth of your forgiveness, despite the wrongdoing, despite the othering, despite your need, try to imagine the joy and the love and the kindness that you would potentially be able to have for the world. Because I believe that's the solution for othering. Right? If the first step is realizing that you do it in the first place and you ask for it, the second step is receiving it and basking it in it and, and, and holding on to that grace. And I would argue only by holding these two terms together, only by realizing that I'm out, but now I'm in. I should be out, but I'm brought in. Only then can we begin to address othering. Because why? Because when we exclude, we're saying, you're out, I'm in. But when you hold and go, wait a second, we should all be out. The gospel says we're all out, but guess what? We're brought in because we're loved, because we're beloved. And if we did that, guess what? All the other identities in the world that we're slinging at each other, when we do that, those things, they can't, they won't be enough. You will never be fully, nobody will fully know you. There's no way for you to fully understand what it's like to be me, and there's no way for me to understand what it's fully like to be you, but that's okay, because why? Brendan Manning puts it this way. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. That's your true self. And then every other identity is ultimately an illusion. And what he's getting at is this, is that when you make him your identity first, then all the other identities can't threaten you. If somebody says and doesn't acknowledge your identity, it's okay, because the only identity that matters has been given to you, the love of God in Christ. Not only can I be taken away from you, when somebody doesn't acknowledge it, it, can't, it, it's, it's not, it doesn't hurt as much. When somebody thinks that, that you're not acknowledging theirs, it's okay. There's a stability here. That your true identity can never, ever, ever be taken from you. Do you see how stable that is? And it's with that stability that we were not going to go off and other other people. Why? Because we don't have to get love from them anymore. And I don't have to other other people to, to, to feel different and feel better. And guess what? That means the only thing left will be joy and wonder. That's why Redeemer LSQ is placing this as part of our DNA. This is what we're supposed to be about. This is what we're about. And that is why, by the way, just, just side point, every week I'm most excited about telling you about this love. Because why? All week long— Every hour of the rest of your week, somebody's telling you what to believe and how to live and how to vote. Every media uh, stream, every friend, every coworker is telling you how to be. And yet we have one hour and change to sit here and talk about this. I believe nobody else is really doing that. And that's why I believe it's a privilege to t sit here and do this because no one else is. And so when people say, why aren't you talking about this issue? Why aren't you talking about that current event? As important as those things are, you're going to hear that everywhere else. You're not going to hear this. 
And I believe there's power here. When you hold together the fact that you are out, but you're now in, it'll allow you to do two things at the same time. First, you can actually now enter into lament. You can enter into regret. You can say, I did do that. I did yell at my kids. I, di- I was unkind to my spouse. I, I did ignore my friends. I have centered myself. You can actually sit in that space, not just acknowledge it intellectually, but feel the consequences and hurt from it. And then simultaneously, never forget that we get to still go home with mercy. That we still get to go home with him. And my question to you is, is will you join us on that quest? Will you be part of this group of individuals that come together as a collective to say, this is what we want to be part of? We, I want us to be able to, in, to, to invite other people into this. Evangelism and justice is just, is just inviting people into the love that you already have. Earlier this summer, uh, I told this story, but I want to tell it again because I'm, I'm still marinating it. Uh, this past summer, I, I took my family. We went to the Netherlands to visit a, a friend of mine that I used to work with. When I was in London, I, we worked with uh, a lot of Bangladeshi Muslims, and we were doing mostly just providing care and services uh, that they needed. But he went on to the Netherlands and, and started a church, and he was telling me about a story about a, a, a man who just converted and was getting baptized at his church. And this man said, stood up and said this. He said, the main reason I'm here right now, the main reason I'm becoming a Christian is because I used to go to mosque, and I used to joke and, and laugh, and they used to hit me and say, be quiet. They used to say, you're, you're not serious enough. But I come here, and I came to this church, and I was told, you know what? You don't laugh enough. You don't joke enough. You don't, you, you don't speak up enough. And what I've realized is my God delights in me so much that I get to delight in him now. And that's why I'm a Christian. Friends, it's the same for us. Please do not leave here. Please do not say, you know what? I'm so glad Michael explained Christianity. I feel so good now that I now know properly what Christianity is. I'm not like that Pharisee over there. If you say that, you've missed this. Because what this is saying is, no, what we're about is we're about joy because we get to sit in the delight in him who delights in us. And as we just sit in that delight, our tendency to other other people will lessen. Start today. Realize that a God who delights in you is a God that you can and want to delight in. And since he sought your happiness now, guess what? The way forward for happiness is to seek the happiness of others. You can start with a co—at your job, you could wash the pot of coffee that you don't drink, but you do it anyway. You can make a meal for a friend. You could talk to that family member that's hard to talk to. And not because you have to, but because you want to. Because that's what's before us. And friends, last thing to say is this. If joy is not our disposition, if this doesn't, if you don't say, you know what, this is, as I reflect, I don't feel that delight, I just want to ask you a question. The question is this. Have you received atonement for your sin? Have you, have you understood that? Have you asked, maybe more importantly, have you received it? And I would argue from this text, you know what, if you don't, if you haven't, how, how do you start? You start with a prayer, a very, very simple one at that. And let yourself sit in that and then receive it. Don't be that person who thinks you don't need mercy and don't be that person who thinks you're not going to ever get it. Allow the reality of what he's done 
to affect us. And if we start today, if we start with a very simple prayer, I believe, but help my unbelief. If we start today and say, Lord, I failed, give me grace, and then accept it. Change won't just happen in you, it'll happen in this congregation, it'll happen out in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we might have heard this story before, we might have even known these concepts. I pray that we would taste and see today how good that is. We know the problems out there. We see how even there's a fracturing, it's getting worse. Everybody has a solution they think they know the answer to. But you've given it to us first. Father, help us to see that you're the one who came to us. You didn't other us. (laughs) You saved us. I pray that we would sit in that and allow the brokenness that we've caused to not just affect us, but then be covered with your love. And with the humility that comes out of that, we can serve, enter, be. Never too, never too high, never too low, but in your love, Father, humbly see where, we, where you want us next. I pray that we, we would see that this is the— last week we saw where we, we do things. We do it here in the city, but this week I pray that we see the essence, the DNA of what we're about is we're broken but loved. Make this real in our lives, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.